0: Well, you may notice uh, the word exiles in the title of the sermon, and uh, it might be a little confusing. You're you're probably thinking, wait a minute, we just finished 1 Peter last week. Uh, Why are we still talking about exiles? Uh, But honestly, I didn't plan it this way. Uh, When I was asked to preach right after Thanksgiving, I wanted to choose a passage that dealt with the topic of giving thanks. It seemed appropriate. Uh, So in this moment of inspiration, I uh, grabbed my computer went to Google, and typed in passages about giving thanks. Uh, And there were several that were there, and so I read through some of them, and uh, Psalm 107 immediately caught my attention. And as I I read through it, I knew that this was the text that uh, I wanted to preach today. However, it wasn't until several days later, uh, as I started studying the context of this psalm, uh, that I learned that most scholars agree that this psalm is being written about the Jews' Uh, after they are returning to the promised land after their time of exile in Babylon. You see, it had been around 70 years since God had judged his people for their sin, and uh, he had allowed them to be taken away in captivity uh, by the Babylonian empire. They had learned a lot of lessons the hard way through this, and now they're being released and allowed to return back to Israel, the land that God had given them long before. Now, uh, we don't know who the author of this psalm is, but we do know that he is urging God's people, these people returning from exile, to look back at how God has delivered them from their troubles as he has gathered them all back into their homeland. But like many passages in the Old Testament, this psalm also has a second layer of fulfillment. You see, it was already fulfilled a few thousand years ago when the Lord gathered his people back. Into the land after their exile, but it also points our attention to a future day that has not come yet when God will gather all of His people from all times, from every corner of the earth, into His eternal kingdom. And we will not be exiles any longer. Uh, Revelation chapter 7 points us to this future reality where it says, "'After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude "'that no one could number, from every nation "'and from all tribes and peoples and languages, "'standing before the throne and before the Lamb, "'clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, "'and crying out with a loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God "'who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.'" You see, one day we will praise the Lord together with saints from all generations but you know what? That, that day has not come yet. We are still exiles in this world that hates Jesus and denies the truth. We are still at times trudging through the mud of our own sin and this sinful fallen world. We are still faced with that reality that life is hard and full of suffering and sorrow, just like First Peter reminded us over and over again. We just spent 27 weeks in First Peter, learning how we are to live in this world during our time of exile. But sometimes we can grow tired and weary of this exile life and be tempted to start complaining and grumbling, much like the Israelites did so many times throughout their history. Man, I, I know for myself, I can so quickly go from perfectly fine to grumbling and complaining and discontent in just a matter of of one 60-hour work week. And that is sadly a true story from just like two months ago. So as we look forward to, to the end of our exile, we are reminded by this psalm to reflect on the goodness of God, which should cause us to give thanks to him for all he has done in our lives. And so let's do just that. But first of all, just a couple of things to note. Uh, The first thing is that this psalm is 43 verses long. Call me crazy. Uh, Tate complains when he does like four verses. So (laughs) you you have no no reason to complain anymore, Tate. Uh, But the average sermon here at Living Water is is like 40 to 45 minutes long. Now, I am no mathologist, but something tells me that that we're going to have to average about a verse per minute. Okay, and I've already used five of those minutes. Now because of that, I wanted Sam to just read the first three verses uh, because we're going to read together the rest of this psalm during the sermon. Uh, but we're going to also do something a little bit different. Uh, you see, there is a, a recurring phrase that shows up four times in this psalm. Uh, this phrase says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now, every time this phrase shows up, we're going to read that all together. Okay, but that will be underlined on the screens for you. Uh, so every time you see the underlined part, we're going to read that all together. We think we can handle that? Okay, good. Uh, now, the other thing is that I've, I've developed a bit of a reputation uh, for being the guy who gives out Twinkies and candy after the sermon. Uh, so in order to avoid getting mugged by a bunch of eight-year-olds in the parking lot later, uh, I should probably do something for the kids again. Um, so kids... We're going to have something at the end for you, okay? But I'm going to make it a little more challenging this time. Uh, so we're going to read in this psalm four different stories of four groups of people, okay? Uh, now, there's, there's the sentence that's underlined in each one of these stories, the, the sentence that we're going to read all together. But before that, there's another sentence that appears four times, okay? It's the same words each time in all four stories, I want you to really pay attention when the, when the verses are on the screen and try to figure out what that verse is, okay? Or, or what, the, what that sentence is that appears four times. It's the same words every time. And uh, if you need help, you can, even, you can open your Bible and look at Psalm 107 and try to find it there or you can ask your mom and dad for help. But I want you to really try and find it, okay? Uh, and if, if you do, I might have something really special for you afterwards, like uh, leftover broccoli from Thanksgiving. <laughs> So let's jump right in. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 3 again. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. The psalmist starts right off the bat here by giving us this clear command to give thanks to God because he is good. We we could end the sermon right now with that. God is good, so give him thanks. Some of you are like, I wish he would just end it right now. I'm hungry. But that's not all it says. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good For his steadfast love endures forever. We know that God is good, period. He is good by nature. It is in his nature to be good. He is good whether he ever chooses to bless us or help us. But because of the fact that he is good, he does choose to help us and bless us and share his goodness with us. And how do we experience His goodness the most? Is it not through His steadfast love that is unending and unwavering, unconditional and unparalleled? Do you know that God loves you? Do you really know it? Not just because you read it on the pages of the Bible, but because you have experienced. The love of God in your life. You see, we can experience the love of God in so many different ways. But here in Psalm 107, we see four specific stories of how four different groups of people saw and experienced the steadfast love of God in their lives as they were either in exile or returning from exile. We see how God rescued each of them from various situations, and so this begins the next section where we're encouraged to give thanks to the Lord, not only for his goodness, but also for his salvation. So let's look at the first of these stories, and remember that I'm going to read this section, but then when we get to the underlined part, we'll read that all together. So starting in verse 4, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry. And thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Oh, got a slight issue. (laughs) All right, let's try it again. Verse eight, all together. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. I I was looking down. I was wondering why nobody was saying it. Like, are we really this bad at this? (laughs) Verse 9, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So here we see a a group of people who were basically lost in the desert. Uh, I I looked it up and, and figured out that the route from Babylon to Jerusalem was somewhere around a thousand miles and took them about four months to complete that journey. You can just imagine how treacherous and dangerous that must have been. These people were seeking a good place to settle down in and live in, but somehow got off track. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they didn't have Google Maps yet at that time. Uh, so they must have still been using MapQuest or something. How many of you remember that from the 90s? Yeah, so they probably were using MapQuest. It led them off, off track. And here they are wandering around in the desert. But how, however they got there, they found themselves hungry and thirsty and in a very desperate situation. I, I've done a, a ton of hiking in the Utah and Arizona desert. And uh, I've had a couple of kind of close calls. One where we, uh, we had hiked down to the bottom of Bryce Canyon and we're hiking around down there just enjoying it. It's, but it's the middle of July and we run out of water. Uh, We we thought we had brought enough water, but we were just guzzling it because it was so hot that day and had to hike up several miles back up to the canyon rim and and just made a beeline to the gift store to get some water. Uh, I've never experienced a thirst quite like that. Uh, Another time, uh, Tiffany and I and and our oldest son when he was four, was carrying him on my back and we we had gone out to another place in the desert and uh, we were hiking back and, and ended up, it was dark at night. Uh, and all I had was a headlamp, you know, and I, and I knew the direction. If you ask Tiffany, like, we have two different versions of this story. She says we were completely lost. I was very confident. I knew which way we had to go to get back to the trailhead, but the problem is it was dark, and, uh, and we, we were off path, and we just kept running into cliff after cliff after cliff. And we even stopped and, and prayed, uh, much like these people, asking the Lord for help. Uh, and, and those are scary situations Uh, But I'm sure that that was nothing compared to what these people were feeling. But in in their desperation, they cry out to the Lord, and he rescues them. He led them by the right path to a city where they could live. And you know that uh, the the Psalms, they're they're not just poems. The the Israelites would actually sing these Psalms. Like this was like their their songbook. Uh, and I, I imagine that every time that they sang this Psalm, it must have caused these Jews to remember how their ancestors had wandered in the desert for 40 years after their, after their exile in Egypt. And despite their disobedience and their grumbling and complaining, God was still gracious and good to them. He miraculously provided manna for their hunger and made water flow from a rock when they were thirsty. He led them both in the desert and then into the promised land. You know, it's interesting that the psalmist here says that that God is not just meeting their physical needs, but notice that he spiritualizes it at the end in verse 9. He says, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He could have just said that he satisfies and fills the hungry stomach, but he uses the word soul here. This is a a metaphor that we see several times in the Bible of the spiritual reality that just as our bodies need food and water to survive, so also our souls need Jesus and a regular intake of his word to be healthy and well and nourished. Here's just a a few examples. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He also said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Psalm 34 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is the true bread and water that our souls need in order to be satisfied. You can try starving yourself, but you will only end up weak and anemic. Some of us have a spiritual eating disorder, thinking that we are better off without a steady diet of the word of God and communion and prayer and fellowship. And that seemed to be the case for this next group of people in the psalm. So let's read about them, starting in verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death "'Prisoners in affliction and in irons. "'For they had rebelled against the words of God "'and spurned the counsel of the Most High. "'So he bowed, down their heart, he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. "'They fell down with none to help. "'Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, "'and he delivered them from their distress. "'He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death "'and burst their bonds apart.'" Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. The second group of people is is also caught in the middle of bad circumstances, but it's not because they accidentally wandered off path. These people are suffering the consequences of their own sin and rebellion. Verse 11 indicates that they were aware of God's word and his counsel, but instead of listening to his word and walking in it, they turned their backs on it and went their own way. Instead of listening to God's advice and wisdom, they flippantly rejected it, thinking that they knew better. This path that they chose landed them in prison. And yet, God was still gracious to them. How was he gracious? (laughs) It was was by subjecting them to such hard labor that they found themselves literally on the ground. Their bodies were bowed down in physical exhaustion, but more importantly, their hearts were bowed down in humility. The, The CSB version says, he broke their spirits. You see, much like the prodigal son who finds himself living in a pig pen, eating the scraps from their trough, These rebels find themselves at absolute rock bottom with no one to help them. They have nowhere to turn and no one to ask for help. This implies that there was some sort of of shame involved as well. You see, in in a communal ancient society where everybody has to rely on one another to survive, if you have no one to help you, that is shameful. You've become the outcast, the reject, the one that nobody will help even on your worst day. But God was at work the entire time. He used this situation they were in to humble them and bring them to the point where they cried out to the Lord, the same Lord whom they had rejected and spurned. And God is again gracious to them and releases them from their imprisonment. He brings them from darkness into light. He brings them from their gloom into joy. Kids... Teenagers, I want to talk to you for a second. Most of you have grown up in church. I don't think you realize what a privilege that is. Uh, You know the truth. You know the ways of Jesus. You, You have so much that has been freely given to you. You have access to the wisdom of God. You hear the counsel of the Lord week in and week out. I beg of you, do not throw that away. Do not spurn the counsel of the Lord like these people did. Do not think that you know better. Don't walk a path that leads leads you to a place where the Lord has to humble you and bring you to the complete end of yourself, because that is a painful process. The third group of people is similar to this second group, but their circumstances are a little different. So let's read that starting in verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, And delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Well, these people didn't end up in prison, uh, but they were just as foolish as the last group in following their sinful ways. And because of their sin, we are told here that they suffered affliction. But what kind of affliction was it? Well, let me ask you, what what kind of affliction would cause you to detest food even to the point where you almost die? Now, I can can only really see two possibilities. The first being that it, it could have been some kind of sickness or disease that caused them to not want to eat. But I think that there are a few clues here that point to something else. The first being is that it's not that they couldn't eat food. It says that they loathed food. They detested it. The second thing is that they needed to be delivered from their destruction. So it appears that there is some sort of destructive behavior going on here. The third clue is that after, the, after their deliverance, they are told to announce God's good works in songs of joy. Because of these things, I I think it sounds like these people were possibly suffering from a deep depression. Now, I I don't want to overlook other possible causes of depression, but certainly one of the main causes uh, that can bring on depression in our lives is when our sinful hearts wander away from the source of true joy and peace. We find ourselves in a state of mind where we are easy prey for the enemy, To feed us lies about God, lies about ourselves, and lies about the value of our own life. But regardless of what their exact affliction was, we know that these people were so bad off that they were literally at death's door. And when it seemed nearly too late, they cried out to the Lord, and listen to what it says. He sent out his word and healed them. He sent out his word and healed them. There is a healing nature to the word of God. And and I'm not just talking about reading the words on a page. You see, we can read the word and study the word and even memorize the word in an academic or a mechanical way. But what we really need more than anything else is a desperate hunger and thirst for the word. Because like we saw before, it is the source of life and sustenance for our very souls. When the Spirit of God implants the truth of God from the Word of God deeply into the heart of a child of God, that person is changed from the inside out, transformed and healed by the Word, just like these sinners were in our psalm. And After the Lord healed them, He tells them to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and to tell of his deeds in songs of joy. In other words, if God has rescued you from your self-destruction, then you ought to show the Lord your gratitude and make it known to others what God has done in your life. Now, our final group of people are maybe a little harder to relate to because they are sailors, I don't think we have a a room full of sailors here today. Uh, But let's read what happens to them, starting in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So just like the the first group of desert wanderers, these people haven't done anything foolish or wrong, but they still find themselves in a terrible situation where they are out at sea doing business when the Lord suddenly causes a huge storm to overtake them. And notice that it it was the Lord who caused the storm. If you ever want to feel completely out of control, just... Go into the ocean where there are huge waves. You know, a friend of mine just the other day was telling me about his brother who used to fly helicopters uh, for the ships that would come in through the the Columbia River Bar. That's where the the Columbia River dumps out into the Pacific Ocean. And uh, you may know that that is one of the most treacherous and dangerous uh, portions of of, uh, sea navigation anywhere in the world. There are thousands of people that have died there. And uh, so these helicopters go out to, to guide the ships in. So anyway, this, this guy, my, my friend's brother, was, it was his first time on one of these helicopters going out. And they get out there, and something happened with the helicopter, there was something wrong with it, it starts losing altitude. And they get to the point where they're, you know, they're hovering just above the water, and they look over, and the, the sea swell, the wave, is literally above the helicopter. Uh, They they said later there was people that were watching them from the shore and they said the helicopter just disappeared behind the sea. And that that is exactly what is happening to these sailors. One minute they are high up on top of a wave or a sea swell and the next minute they feel like they are in the depth of the ocean surrounded by huge ocean swells that could have easily swallowed them up. They are completely helpless and terrified and desperate. And when it seemed like death was inevitable, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivers them. Just like Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, the Lord says, shh. And the storm stops and the waters were quiet. (laughs) And then the psalmist adds this little phrase. I like this. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the biggest understatement in the Old Testament. And after they arrive in their safe haven, just like the last group, they are told to exalt and praise the Lord publicly so that everyone can hear of the great works that God did. Now, do you notice how in each of these four stories, there's, there's a pattern, and each story followed the exact same pattern? They experience some kind of trouble, which then gets so bad that they're in a state of distress, utter despair. They cry out to the Lord in prayer, and he responds by coming to their rescue. Then there is a call for them to give thanks thanks for the Lord's love and for the wonderful things that he has done. So to summarize, there's trouble, distress, prayer, rescue, and thanksgiving. Okay, I want you to remember that. You Maybe even write it down because we're going to talk about it again later. Trouble, distress, prayer, rescue, and thanksgiving. This is the same pattern of our lives as well, isn't it? We, we tend to live in this continuous cycle of falling into some sort of trouble, whether it's brought on by our own sinful choices or by circumstances outside of our control or simply by living in a broken world. But we find ourselves in trouble and in distress. Sadly, we, we typically stay in this distress for far too long, trying to fix it ourselves, until it finally becomes too much for us to handle. We, we can't keep our heads above water, and finally we cry out to the Lord in our trouble. The Lord is gracious, and he delivers us from our distress. He works in ways that we never could, and he walks with us and leads us through our valley of the shadow of death, to the other side where we see the light of day once again. And our response to all of this should be to give praise and thanks to our deliverer, to acknowledge his strength, his power, his sovereign control over us, his undying love and faithfulness towards us. We see all that he has done and we praise him. But of course, we know that the greatest reason we have to thank the Lord is not not just because he saved us from deserts and prisons and sorrow and, and storms, but because Jesus has saved us from the death that we should have died. He saved us from the penalty that we should have paid for our sin in hell. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He took our sin on himself at the cross and suffered under the wrath of God that we should have suffered. And then he conquered death for us giving us hope of life after death. We have so much to be thankful for, do we not? But we are a forgetful people. You know, it seems like throughout my life, I I occasionally go through these same cycles where I I become forgetful. I, I, I forget to thank the Lord for his goodness. I stop giving thanks and then I get d- discontent with everything I have. And then I start wanting and coveting what I don't have or shouldn't have. And then I start complaining that I can't have it. And then my mind is consumed with negativity, and I open the door to the enemy to whisper those lies that you would just be happier with that grass on the other side of the fence, that grass that looks greener. We know it's not actually greener, it's just brown dead, dry grass, but it has a fresh coat of bright green spray paint on it. It's counterfeit green grass. It's counterfeit happiness. You know, it's, it's absolutely crazy how divided and hypocritical we can be, how I can be. On the one hand, I can say that I believe that God is the gracious giver of everything that I have in my life, that he is sovereignly in control Over my life, and that He determines what is best for me. I I am blessed beyond imagination with great health, the most amazing wife, and three incredible boys, a great home, a business that provides for us, a church full of my brothers and sisters who love me and point me to Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, when my eyes are on Christ, He provides a joy and a peace that are beyond anything that I could muster up on my own. He truly fills my soul with good things. And yet, sometimes, on the other hand, when my eyes are off of Jesus, even though I claim to believe all of this, I say, no, I I want something more. I want something else. I want something other. I want something better, in air quotes. I'm essentially saying, Lord, you haven't been good enough to me. I'm not happy with what you've provided. I think I could just be better off on my own. And then I get stuck in that thankless mindset and I get grumpy and negative and cynical and discontent and lacking any joy. Eventually, I hit rock bottom and cry out to the Lord, and he saves me. That was my prayer just two years ago, this time of the year, two years ago. Lord, save me from myself. Save me from the trouble of my own making. And then he reminds me of his goodness. He restores his joy in me. He sets me back up on my feet like a loving father does. You see, he he doesn't just save us one time when we first come to Jesus. No, he saves us and rescues us again and again throughout our lives. So we should see, sorry, we should give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his salvation. But we now move on from these four parallel stories to an explanation of the Lord's justice, which should also cause us to praise him. Let's read starting in uh, verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad." and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Isn't it so interesting how the Old Testament frequently makes this connection between the sin or the righteousness of a people and the condition of their land and even their weather? You follow sin and destruction, and you will consequently see the destruction of nature. You follow righteousness and peace, you will consequently see the renewal of nature. The rain, the crops, the livestock, even the ground are all implicated in the blessing or the judgment on the people that are living in the land. But this psalm makes it very clear that it is the Lord who is ultimately in control of these things. You know, we are so disconnected from nature in our modern, in our modern world, aren't we? We can go to, to Safeway or any other of the 10 grocery stores in town by Beef, chicken, fish, lobster, wheat, corn, whatever else our stomachs desire. So we, we tend to forget just how dependent we are on the land that we live in. But you know, all it would take is, is a few bad harvests, a virus outbreak, a couple of seasons of drought, and our entire country could be brought to its knees. And so our security is not found in a government or in a grocery store. It is found in the God of justice who gives abundant blessing to those whom he loves and judges those who curse his name. Remember First Peter that, that told us that God is the just judge in whom we can entrust our souls. He is the one who will make all things right in the end. He will vindicate your suffering. He will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. He will establish his kingdom on earth where peace and truth and perfect justice will reign. But here in our psalm, we see that that God's justice is not only for the future, but also for here and now. He has blessed his people and established them in a good land, But we're told that oppressors come and diminish them through evil. So God responds by judging those oppressors and making them wander in a wilderness, much like the the first group of people that we looked at. And meanwhile, he raises up the needy out of their affliction and establishes them once again. Those who love what is right, they see this and it makes them glad. But the wicked shut their mouths which again reminds me of 1 Peter 2.15. For it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And now we come to the final verse of this psalm, verse 43, and it is perhaps the most important. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me read that one more time. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to the two verbs here attend to and consider. Attend, it means to take care of, to keep watch, to be on guard. Consider means to understand, to see, to discern. You see, we must pay attention to the Lord's goodness or else we might miss it. If we are not paying attention, we will miss it because we are a distracted people. We must pay attention to the Lord's goodness, to his salvation, to his justice. Our eyes and our ears should be wide open to what he is doing in our lives, in the lives of other people, and in the world. If we are wise, if we are really paying attention We will see that he is worthy of praise. And we should spend time thinking about these things, dwelling on the faithful love of our God for us. If I could summarize the entire message of this psalm, it would be this. Meditating on the Lord's goodness, on his salvation, and on his justice leads us to thanksgiving. But how much time and brain space, do we actually dedicate to that? I mean, let's be honest. How often do we actually stop, put away all the distractions, and meditate on the Lord and on his goodness? It's no wonder why we're anxious and depressed and grumpy and worn thin and discontent and thankless. The author of this psalm tells us that if we are wise then we will pay close attention to these things that we have just seen. We will consider God's faithful love to us. He is exhorting us to meditate on these things. On what things? On God's goodness to us. On his consistent and steady and undying love for us. On how he has rescued us from trouble. On how he has so abundantly blessed us far beyond what we deserve. On how God rules this world with justice. And when we reflect and meditate on these things, we cannot help but say, thank you, Lord. You are good. You are faithful. Your love lasts forever. You have rescued me from my sin and from my trouble. And now I want to tell of your deeds in songs of joy. I want to exalt you in the gathering of your people. This is not meant to be an individualistic thing. Well, I'm just going to go and find my quiet place at home and praise the Lord. I mean that's good. Do that. I encourage you to do that. But we are told over and over again in Scripture to praise the Lord together in the gathering of God's people. And that is definitely what's in view in this psalm here. And so with that being said, I, I would like to help us to actually put this into practice in our lives. And so here's what I had encourage you to do this week. Take some time. Put away the distractions leave your phone in the other room, and just dwell on these things. Reflect on how good God has been in your life, on how God has brought you through some difficult times in your life. Parents, share these stories with your kids at the dinner table. Community groups, rather than doing sermon questions this week, go around the room and share these types of stories of how God came through at a time in your life when things seemed hopeless. Now, I know that some of you don't like to talk in groups. I would have all my introvert friends raise their hands, but then they wouldn't do it because then somebody might look at them. (laughs) But I know you're out there. So I'm helping you out, okay? I'm I'm giving you an easy template to use. Remember that, that pattern that we talked about? Trouble, distress, prayer, rescue, and thanksgiving. If you have a hard time talking in groups or, or, or uh, coming up with a story and telling it well, just talk about what was happening at that time in your life, how you were feeling because of it, how you asked God for help, and what he did to help you, and then give him all the credit for it and express how thankful you are to him. You know what I would love to see is that we all become so comfortable with sharing these types of stories of God's goodness. And we are so passionate about praising our God for his goodness in our lives, that we become living, breathing, walking testimonies of God's goodness. And we start sharing them with neighbors and coworkers and kids on the sports team and grocery store workers. And of course, leading to sharing the best news of all, which is the gospel of Christ. We, we live in a world that is so full of negativity and evil, and we are definitely exiles in that world. But we are never told to just retreat and hold on till the end. So let us be examples of gratitude because our lives have been radically transformed by Jesus And we have a confident hope that one day the Lord will gather all of his children from the north, the south, the east, and the west into his kingdom. Jesus is the right path home for the wanderer. Jesus is the chain breaker for the prisoner. Jesus is the salvation for the rebellious sinner. Jesus is the sea calmer for the storm-tossed voyager. Jesus is the joy giver. Jesus is the soul satisfier. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm as we look forward to that day when he will redeem us from all our troubles and gather all of his exiles together to give thanks to him for his faithful love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Now, some of you might be at that point of trouble and distress in your life right now. It might be difficult for you to give thanks. But if that's the case, then use this opportunity to cry out to the Lord like these people did in the psalm. Cry out to him in your time of distress. But no matter where we are in life right now, we can all reflect on how good and how just and how loving our God is. How he has saved us from our sin and from all sorts of troubles. And that should cause us to thank and praise him. And so I'll pray to close, and then let's do just that. As we sing in just a moment, let's praise and thank and worship our great God for his goodness. Let's pray. Father, would you humble us, humble us and break us from our our self-reliance? Jesus, you said that Without me, you can do nothing. And so, Father, help us to rely on you in our time of trouble, in our time of distress. Lord, we call out to you. You are the only one who can rescue. We know that salvation is from you. And so, Father, I I pray that if there is someone here today that does not know you, I pray that they would come to see you and know and taste the salvation of the Lord. Father, would you remind us of your goodness? Would you cause us to sing songs of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving to our great God who has saved us and redeemed us, who rules the world with justice? Father, we need you. We thank you that you are good. And so we praise you now in songs of joy. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.